Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to The Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, joined as always by Kelly Weil. Kelly, there's one big news item we got to talk about. Will, I'm in mourning. I frankly don't know what we're going to cover for the rest of the year. The King, Tucker Carlson, he's lost his throne, thrown down the crown. He's out. He's gone. Huge blow to the ball tanning community. Now, let's go through this beat by beat because there's a lot of, I feel that we still don't have really a truly satisfying explanation of what happened here. I mean, do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. This is a weird, weird case where not even Tucker seems to know what happened, right? He seems to have been chucked out pretty unceremoniously. There's a lot of reporting from a lot of outlets, including ours, which I think rocks. But just trying to get a sense of what happened, why Tucker is now a persona non grata at Fox and yeah, why he finally, after everything, did something that pissed off Murdoch. So here's what happened. Around 1130 or noon, Fox puts out this press release that says Tucker is he's out. It was not like we wish Tucker well as he leaves. He's not going to get a goodbye show. He's really getting axed very unceremoniously. And this was the guy who is the biggest star in cable news and certainly the biggest at Fox. And so the idea that they would kick him off, it was really surprising. There weren't a lot of lead ups to it. And so we're left to wonder what happened. As of, it seems like he didn't know this was going to happen. His final show on Friday, he said, well, we'll see you next week. They were promoting his show earlier that day on Monday. That day, yeah. Nobody knew. There was no memo went out, apparently. Yeah, and he doesn't get a goodbye show. Brian Selter, who obviously got axed from CNN a few months back, he was making a lot in Vanity Fair about when you, obviously, people get fired in cable news, but they're sort of like, it's not me, it's you, kind of break up. They, or vice versa, perhaps. They give you a goodbye show where you say, oh, what a run we've had, and then you get the boot. This is the equivalent of like when you're typing and suddenly you can't log into your email or your yeah. Slack and you say, hey, what's going on there? <laughs> yeah, like trying to get your ID badge through the turnstile. That's and... right. Why is it glowing red? Exactly. And so, Kelly, what are we to make of this? So, I mean, well, I think he has to have done something grievously wrong, or maybe it was the accumulation of all ills, because there has been such a sustained campaign to get Tucker off of Fox that it's actually been a sticking point for Fox. They've been like, whatever, you can pull all your advertisers, we're still going to leave this guy on. And I think for a good financial reason for them, even if he's not pulling in the ad revenue, he's still the most watched figure on there. He's kind of a kingmaker on the right. And he's got away with so much wild stuff while Fox was digging in its heels. I remember just a few years ago, Media Matters came out with 
these just awful comments he'd made about underage girls and just talking about age of consent laws and like talking about like wanting to see underage girls like experimenting sexually just like forget getting kicked off of fox news that would get you kicked out get of, you, you know? kicked off of any neighborhood with a school in it that's <laughs> yes. right that's right and everyone at the time was saying hey is this the end for him well no clearly not that's not the bar for fox but clearly he reached some kind of either tipping points some accumulation of ills something went wrong and it's done yeah, so let's run down some of the explanations we've heard since this happened. And as we record this, Tucker has not weighed in. So let's see. Okay, our options are, and as you said, it may be just all of these things together. I will say Rupert Murdoch's, one of his sort of hidden emails came out during the Dominion lawsuit. I emailed him. He's exchanged some emails with me in the past after this to say, no, I don't want to talk to you. So I emailed him again. I said, oh, I'd like to do an interview. And he said, oh, I bet you would. No. So yesterday I emailed Rupert with my theory, which is sort of a theory I've stolen from our media team. So here's one of the things. And basically, I mean, I feel like none of these explanations are really that satisfying. Maybe they're true. I felt like I was going down Twitter yesterday and just wanting to reply. No, that's not it. You're wrong. Liar. All these things like you're getting spun, whatever. Okay. So a couple things, right? The most obvious one is that this is after the Dominion lawsuit was settled, that either it was a condition of the lawsuit or just sort of a house cleaning that they're getting rid of him. But for me, I don't necessarily buy this because Tucker did not have that much exposure in that lawsuit. He was not really one of the main drivers of the Dominion case. That would be like Maria Bartiromo and Lou Dobbs. Dobbs obviously is no longer at Fox, but Bartiromo still is, and she hasn't been fired yet. So to me, that doesn't really hold a lot of water. Kelly, what, what are some of these other explanations? Yeah, and just to add on that, I think the idea that Dominion was plotting behind the scenes to have a condition in their settlement where you got to kick Tucker off, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me for other reasons. I mean, Dominion, I know people wanted this lawsuit to be a case where Dominion really stuck at the Fox. It really showed Fox's true colors. And that wasn't actually in Dominion's interest. They're a for-profit company. They just wanted that. They're owned by a hedge fund. Yeah. I mean, these these are, yeah, this is not like a mom and pop voting machine shop. No, not at all. (laughs) Uncle Ray's voting emporium or something. No, I mean, they wanted the money and they got it. They got nearly a billion dollars out of Fox. And for all that, they didn't even demand an apology or anything from Fox. I don't think any kind of retraction or anything like that. They got the cash and they walked out. So for them to have said, hey, it's all good. Mistakes happen. You don't have to make an apology. But then to secretly demand that Tucker leaves, I think is kind of mm, sus. There have been other allegations or other theories, rather, of instances where Tucker got it wrong and that people are threatening illegal action. One that's come out a lot is the case of Ray Epps. He was a January 6th rioter. He became the subject of a conspiracy theory because Tucker World pushed this idea that Ray Epps was a federal infiltrator who was trying to rile up the crowd and get them to break into the Capitol. That didn't really happen. There was actually a very recent 60 Minutes program showing that Ray Epps was in some cases trying to de-escalate a little bit. And nevertheless, Guy's life has been just upended by conspiracy theories. So there has been some theorizing that Epps is talking about suing Tucker and that on top of all the other lawsuits that Tucker is facing, that maybe this was the straw that broke the camel's back. And again, sort of skeptical of that. I mean, for Fox to have just paid out what was it, $797 million to Dominion? I don't think they're ultra worried about a lawsuit from one guy. 
Yeah, and that's exactly right. In sort of what we see with these individual level cases is your damages probably aren't going to be that high because you haven't just destroyed an entire business. And additionally, if you fire the guy, you don't get to avoid the lawsuit, right? Like they're like, okay, well, he still worked for you. So, right, there is the Ray Epps thing, which I think is interesting. That's bubbling. I mean, he definitely is laying the groundwork to Sue Fox. Then, additionally, there's another lawsuit, the Abby Grossberg lawsuit, which was sort of a little buddy lawsuit to the Dominion lawsuit, which was a woman who had worked for Bartiromo and ultimately for Tucker and was kind of mixed up in the original Bartiromo segment with the woman that was based on the email from the woman who said that she spoke to the wind and that Antonin Scalia got caught in a human hunting expedition. And so... Basically, she claims that Fox hid information, blah, blah, blah. So she worked for Tucker after Bartiromo, and she said, well, this was like a really sexist environment. And I think something that sort of dovetails into our next possible explanation is in her lawsuit, Abby Grossberg says, Mr. Carlson was very capable of using such disgusting language about women in the workplace. Okay. So then last night, Confider, the Daily Beast, very excellent media newsletter, which comes out every Monday, everyone should subscribe to, reported that a large part of Tucker's ouster was, we saw this in sort of vaguer terms earlier in the day and some reporting from Brian Stelter at Vanity Fair, this idea that something had emerged in the Dominion discovery that was still under seal, but that was basically made it untenable for Tucker to remain at Fox. Now, according to Confider, those are messages where Tucker repeatedly calls Sidney Powell the C-word. Now, I believe... In some of the messages that came out, he used very other, slightly less objectionable language to describe her as well. And so it seems not impossible during the deposition. It seemed as though Dominion's voters, they said, you ever say anything else bad about Sidney Powell? And Tucker seemed to say like, oh, I know where you're headed with this. So that may be out there at the same time. Do I necessarily think that that would be what would end it? I mean, possibly. But I feel like what we've seen from Fox News in the past, that is not how they operate. Right. Yeah. I think maybe my best honest theory here is that it's a couple of these things in conjunction, right? This Abby Grossberg lawsuit, it's not coming from outside the house. It's coming from inside of Fox, where she's talking about scenes where like people in Tucker's office had a giant blow up poster of Nancy Pelosi in a swimsuit. She's giving the really buzzworthy, gross stuff that happened with regard to sexism and discrimination in that workplace. I think even if that's not going to be like a huge monetary settlement, it is going to be very embarrassing for Fox and for additional information to come out suggesting that, yeah, this was a super sexist workplace. You know, if Tucker Carlson is using this word about Sidney Powell, I mean, that's probably going to help her case, Abby Grossberg's case, that is. So, I mean, maybe it was an accumulation of lots of little cuts. Maybe they're worried that all these allegations are going to accumulate into something that is not really worth supporting anymore. There's also the theory, and it's come out in a bit of reporting, which most reporting seems to suggest that this firing came right from Rupert Murdoch. Tucker finally did something to piss off the big man. And there's been some suggestion about, okay, well, what did he do that finally annoyed the one guy you can't annoy at Fox? And there's some thinking that maybe we saw a lot of Tucker text messages redacted in the discovery process that maybe Fox was able to see the unredacted version and that some of them said something just beyond the pale about Murdoch or something disrespectful and Murdoch wouldn't stand for it. So that's another theory. I do hope that we find out more. I know that this is an extremely gossipy world, so I'm very optimistic about that. 
Yeah, that is the beauty of it is like we're getting this stuff that's come out already within we're recording this 24 hours after the firing. And I think we're going to get to the bottom of it. But it does just sort of have that feeling of like, and it's such an unsatisfying thing that's like, there's another shoe to drop. There's something out there that's going to come out. And I think particularly people end up getting in these leak cycles a lot in right wing media, which you got to love where if Fox is leaking against Tucker now, then Tucker's going to start leaking against them. And then Fox is going to say, well, here's the real deal. Okay, I I thought we were going to be nice about it. And so, you know, we'll have to see. I mean, so moving on to the response. So, I mean, this really went off like a bomb. I mean, a lot of these people who get fired from Fox, there's kind of like a lead in with Bill O'Reilly, for example. We saw these news articles about how his treatment of women and all this stuff. And then suddenly he gets booted. But in Tucker's case, this really was completely unexpected. So it's interesting to me because, I mean, Tucker was really like one of Fox's last appeals to like the very online, very Trumpy right. I mean, a lot of people who were angry after they called Arizona for Biden in 2020 said, well, at least they've got Tucker. Tucker is the last reason to watch that channel. And now, I mean, that's gone. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that always set Tucker apart in my mind from all the other objectionable figures on that channel is that he was sort of the pipeline between like the 4chan right and the Tea Party kind of Fox News grandpa right. He was really plugged into, I think, some of the most insidious messaging going on in American politics right now and is extremely adept at recrafting what was, say, a 4chan meme into something that an older, very plugged in voter can understand. So it's just an architect in right wing grievance. And I don't know that Fox has anybody exactly of that resume right now to replace him. Yeah, I mean, there's really no, like, he's very idiosyncratic as a host. I mean, he, all of these hosts, they sort of end up having kind of like what they've called the, in Sean Hannity's case, the Sean Hannity extended universe. So like when they were doing the Russia investigation counter narrative, he would sort of drudge up all these characters, like former U.S. attorney Joe DeGeneva and his wife. They would get all these people who would come on every, like John Solomon, for example, who would come on every night, who basically did not exist outside of that TV show, like it professionally, or some of them were not allowed on Dayside Fox, which is ostensibly the newsier side. So in this case, Tucker had his own people, right? I mean, he had Glenn Greenwald, he had Andy No, he had Darren Beatty, who's sort of this former Trump White House guy. And some of these guys, like their businesses were essentially built around being on Tucker, driving people to their sub stack. Or I mean, Darren Beatty's website, Revolver News, basically would not exist without him being on every night. And a lot of these guys, they sort of need a, just a placard to have on the Chiron. These are not really going concerns other than as a thing you flog on Tucker every night. And so there's been a huge outcry from those guys who are going to see their path to the most popular show on cable news just vaporized. More broadly, there's been sort of a backlash from other far-right figures. Brigitte Gabriel tweeted, Fox News has gone woke. Now they must go broke. Wow. Brigitte and Media Matters aligned at last. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, this is the whole like, go woke, go broke thing. I mean, you sort of have to prove it for like, you know, now she's like, now they must go broke. So there's just been a lot of outrage on the right at Tucker's exit. It's not very satisfying to say, but there's got to be something out there that explains this. Yeah, absolutely. And like I did say before, I'm optimistic about it leaking because Tucker is a leaker. Tucker has been for years a source for so many reporters on Fox and things like that. You know, he loves doing his little texts and everything. And one side narrative that I thought was quite funny in the aftermath of this is that Tucker just texts everyone and he would just like spontaneously text really mean things to like CNN host being like, hey, Oliver, I hear you're getting fired soon. And so now these people are just kind of 
reveling in it. Like I said, I'm sure or I'm optimistic that we're going to hear some new news on this. I kind of cringe in advance to know what it is, but I don't think it's physically possible for this entire contingent of the right to remain silent. Yeah, it is so weird. I mean, so I do just want to underline a point you made earlier, Kelly, which is the way that Tucker really mainstreamed white nationalism, conspiracy theories. I mean, really, no one else on Fox was going as hard on January 6th conspiracy theories on. He once had that segment that was like gypsies are really proliferating. I mean, really like crazy, crazy stuff that was not really existing anywhere on Fox. And he would, in the same way that Trump would do with a lot of this stuff, he would mainstream it and make it acceptable. As they talk about his replacements, I just can't imagine really anyone else at Fox doing a documentary about ball tanning based around a guy named Raw Egg Nationalist, right? I mean, he was really, really weird on top of everything else. And so speaking of his replacements, Kelly, who do you have in the Tucker replacement draft? It's not a deep bench and it's not a good bench either. Just from Fox's perspective, I think the likeliest is probably going to be Jesse Waters. He's got that face recognition, right? He's well known there. But it strikes me well that a lot of their biggest names are actually kind of from the aspiring comedy world. That's what Jesse Waters is. That's what Greg Gutfeld is. Tucker always had the kind of claim to intellectualism, and I do think that he was quite networked with the intellectual dark web, those types of people. I don't really see a Jesse Waters getting up there and talking to Medicus Moldbug, right, Curtis Yarvin. I don't see that being an intellectually simulating, if awful, conversation. So I'm not entirely sure who has the juice. I would suggest like some outside candidates. I think a Tulsi Gabbard could kill it in that spot. <laughs> oh, Kelly, you're a genius. You got to run Fox. That's such an out of left field pick, but I love it. Yeah, yeah. She has the right combination of like a slightly lefty veneer and then just hard right bona fides. Yeah. Because you got to, Tucker had a little je ne sais quoi in a way. I mean, Jesse Waters, famously, he emerged. He was Bill O'Reilly's minion, essentially. And he had this segment called Waters World, where he would go out and ask people rude questions. Memorably, he did one in Chinatown that was, was very racist. And so then he's been hanging out on The Five and various other shows. And I mean, this is a guy he has, in my mind, still kind of a torpy vibe from being Bill O'Reilly's minion. But he's kind of grown up on the air. He memorably made this comment about how this woman he wanted to date well, by the way, he was married to someone else. And this was, I believe, the colleague. Yes. So this was an intern he wanted to date and you know sleep with. And he, I believe, said he let the air out of her tires so that she would then need help with her car. Now, he related this as such a cute little story, leaving out the fact that he was married to someone else at the time. I mean, the whole thing is just very bizarre. So he's got a little nastiness, too. But I think Jesse Waters is probably the leading candidate at this point. Yeah. But what's also interesting to me is if they bring on like a Jesse Waters, he's going to need the Tucker-esque writing staff. One thing I think he flagged before is that some of Tucker's staff left with him. I think Justin Wells, who's his executive producer, also got canned. And it takes a lot, I think, to make that Tucker time slot work. Tucker is not spending all night on 4chan looking up the it's okay to be white meme and trying to figure out how to reconfigure that for a primetime audience. Like he does have these minions and all kinds of weird pockets of the internet. And I think with them also leaving, it leaves Fox doubly in the hole to meet its racism quota. So what do you think will become of Tucker now? 
I think, okay. <laughs> so there's a lot of speculation that he's launching a political bid, which is maybe the most cursed option here. I don't think that's imminently the case. Clearly was expecting to go on the air on Monday night. He did not have a presidential campaign in the hopper that he was leaving for. So I don't think that's going to happen right now. I, again, very cursed situation where he runs for, say, governor of Maine and sweeps and then has a political career from there. I could unfortunately see it. I think more realistically, we're looking short term podcast. He's going to go Rogan podcasting, says I'm my own boss and I don't need to be on somebody's Newsmax. Any other channel is going to be a downgrade for him. So that's what I'm going to go with. I think that's right. I mean, I think there's going to be some sort of media holding pattern kind of podcast thing. So pulling back, finally, people were saying, for all of you celebrating Tucker's exit, well, guess what? Fox News is not a nice company still. Well, no kidding. But Tucker was a uniquely, I think, negative host in terms of promoting conspiracy theories and racism. And I think worse than the sort of replacement level host. Yeah, absolutely. Someone who pioneered the Fox's expression of great replacement theory. And I think he's uh, fittingly going to be kind of hard to replace. Okay, Kelly, you've got an interesting story about a couple that wants to repopulate the globe. Yeah, absolutely. This is what's being called the pronatalist couple or less friendly, the eugenics couple. No, it's well, I feel like I need to put these caveats up top. Like, I'm not normally going to go after a couple unless they've come after me, unless I've seen them in three or more articles, which is what's happened. Which qualifies as a personal attack on Kelly. <laughs> yes. Have I been inconvenienced? Is hit that threshold. No, we're talking about, you may have seen them on Twitter. There's a bit of a meme now. There's Perv, this new article in The Telegraph. This is the elite couple breeding to save humanity. This is a couple that believes in pronatalism, which is this idea that you have a ton of kids, not necessarily because you love kids, but it's more for, let's say, demographic reasons. This is really popular with, obviously, racists who say there's not enough white kids and you've got to outbreed other populations. And it's also popular with like the intellectual dark web Silicon Valley types who probably have similar fears to the racists, but couch them in a little bit more intellectual language about, oh, there's going to be a population collapse and we need to have elites and genetically superior offspring. So this couple, it's Malcolm and Simone Collins. They are the head of a pronatalist organization. Now, they're going to be really explicit. They say, hey, we're not racist. We're not eugenicists. But nevertheless, a lot of their actions or their advocacy overlaps with some things that eugenicists tend to like. They've been in three profiles now, The Telegraph, just this week, a Business Insider, Bloomberg last May. And they're running a campaign to have, let's say, more genetically screened children. They screened their last of three children via IVF, and they picked out an embryo that was least likely to be obese. They are getting quite a lot of funding for this organization, which they call a pronatalist.org. They've received almost half a million dollars from an Estonian tech billionaire who funds many effective altruist organizations. This is another ideology that's popular with the Silicon Valley, right? The idea that you can really do all kinds of crazy things now as long as it theoretically benefits populations a thousand years down the road. So this is a couple that, like it or not, you're going to run into them in a profile near you. 
this whole effective altruism thing, I mean, these guys have really taken a back seat after Sam Bankman Freed blew up. But like it kind of dovetails with Elon Musk, like, well, we gotta move to a new planet, all this stuff. And I was thinking about that with the SpaceX rocket blowing up and just spraying particulates all over the region. And then you say, Well, yeah, I guess we nuked uh, this part of Texas, but like versus finding a new planet, it's worth it. But anyways, but getting back to these folks, I mean, yeah, people may have seen these folks. They look, I think it's politely to put their look is weird like they have weird glasses they have weird haircuts and it is this pronatalism thing and you know this is a very like right-wing cause and not to say well you know we need to make it easier to have kids but it's not like we're going to increase social programs to do this it's generally we're kind of going to hector people into having more kids or in the case of elon musk like really rich people can have kids Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's lots to be said for the reasons why people are having fewer kids. I mean, it's just so outrageously expensive in the U.S. Like, can you blame anyone? But this doesn't really often go hand in hand with social programs with, I don't know, universal child care or food stamps, anything like that. No, they're really targeting a more what they would probably describe as an upper echelon of parents. And this is kind of encoded into a lot of the language and the technologies that they promote. Technologies for you do all your baby making via IVF, you do genetic screening and you pick out the ones that are the most likely to be the next Peter Thiel, something like that. You're trying to determine your baby's future before they're even born or even conceived rather. So yeah, this is not a widely accessible philosophy. It's something that you need quite a lot of money for. I do want to go back to these Collins figures because they're pretty interesting. They've actually made the news a couple times before getting really into the procreation field. They are maybe the most Reddit couple I've ever seen. He actually proposed to her on Reddit via manga drawings that he'd commissioned of them, which cute if you're into that. His handle is Sir Technocracy. He's a My Little Pony fan. She commissioned a full-size manga body pillow of herself for him. Some maybe more dark-sided Reddit stuff that they're doing per uh, Vice News report. He's on an anti-fat Reddit channel discussing why he thinks fat people should be sent to zoos for medical imaging. So these folks are going to say, well, we're not eugenicists. We believe that everyone should be able to have as many kids as they want. And yet when you look at what they're screening for and what they're kind of prescribing for other people... I kind of have my doubts. I mean, this is a vague, like, basically the reason we're talking about this is because this is sort of a vaguely right-wing movement that has a lot of sort of hints as to what their true beliefs are. I mean, they're really on this media tour. And and so, look, normally we'd leave their kids out of it, but it's kind of their whole thing. And so the names they have chosen for these kids, they're not exactly beating the right-wing rap, right? Okay. In particular, I remember this guy who marched in Charlottesville, who's a big deal guy, named Augustus Invictus, right? Because there's this strain of far-right trad ideology. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Kelly, but it sort of seems like if you're a part of that, the trad community, you either go Norse and you love like Germanic stuff and like fields and stuff, or you go Roman Empire. And so it seems like these guys have chosen, well, they're kind of mixing it, right? Okay. So one kid is named Octavian. Okay. I would just name my kid Augustus. I wouldn't go with the pre-emperor version. Torsten, obviously, presumably named after the strongman character in last season of Righteous Gemstones. Torsten, so you're getting a little Germanic there. And then finally, their daughter, Titan Invictus, because they felt a woman, 
I guess now that's a woman's name here. A woman not named Titus Invictus would not be taken seriously. So you've got to really go with the very intense, vaguely Roman name. <laughs> Yeah, there are so many instances with this couple specifically, and also the movement generally will be like, we're not being racist, we're not being sexist, we don't actually like these things, and then invoke something that has certainly some sexist DNA, the idea that a woman won't be taken seriously for being identifiably female. One thing that I really like is anytime anyone brings up that, hey, you're doing this kind of eugenicist thing that the Nazis are also really into, they'll say, no, 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 we're doing actually the opposite of what the Nazis are doing because, and this is completely dovetails with their philosophy of genetics being this all-determining thing. They believe that a lot of political belief is genetic. And so a lot of Nazis' kids will also be Nazis. And because Nazis are trying to have a lot of kids, that they, the Collins, must combat fascism by trying to outbreed the Nazis. So, I mean, I guess I understand that on paper. In practice, I'm not sure that's doing what they say it does. There's a lot of Overton windows shifting with this crew where they're like, look, we're their reasonable option. I mean, I read another interview with them where they said, look, does this seem a little Handmaid's Tale to you? Well, no, that's not our deal. But if you don't go along with what our pro-natalist institute says, then there will be a Handmaid's Tale. So you got to roll with us. Before we move on, there is a connection to none other than Barry Weiss and the intellectual dark web here with the University of Austin, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, there's a whole genre of online adults who I think have a lot of their identity rooted in having been gifted children and maybe uh, grades K through five. And they have... I got that, yeah, that face when your gifted child anxiety flares up. uh, Oh, my God. I, too, got a good report card in fourth grade. No, they've launched the Collins Institute for the Gifted, which partners with the University of Austin. That's Barry Weiss's outfit. They say this is from their website. The Collins Institute is working with the UATX to accelerate students' journeys into college coursework and accumulation of transferable college credits. Well, one problem geniuses is that the University of Austin is not accredited. It's like a summer program where you go and talk about like, I don't know, Curtis Yarvin in a room with some people for eight weeks and that's it. Like cool for networking. But if you're talking about actual college credits, talking about building an academic career, that ain't it. I want to go to the University of Austin so bad, but you know, maybe we can get scholarships. I mean, I think they should. But at the same time, I feel like it would be like so many of these right wing things we go to where it's like, well, what did you expect? Yes, I'm sitting in a conference room for a couple of weeks with some very boring people. So We're just flagging this couple. What are they up to? It is interesting, this media tour. I mean, I guess on one hand, the media just loves weirdos. Yeah, absolutely. I think it does fit with this. Elon Musk is a huge pronatalist guy. There's a lot of talk about it. He will constantly tell people about the latest of his 10, 20 children he has. So I think there's a lot of fascination about this. It's kind of, it's weird. It's interesting in its weirdness. But I think there's quite a lot to unpack here. And I think for maybe all this individual couples protestations that this isn't eugenics. A lot of people are going to look at it and very favorably say, hey, yeah, that's eugenics. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on them. Kelly, who do we have as the guest this week? All right. This week we have Sam Adler-Bell. He is the host of the Know Your Enemy podcast. It's a great pod looking into all the intellectual figures and less than intellectual figures on the right. We're going to talk to him about Ron DeSantis and the pseudo-intellectual movement popping up around him. Awesome. And I believe a returning champ to the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Two-timer. Excellent. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Fever dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. All right, we are joined by Sam Adler-Bell. He's the host of the podcast, Know Your Enemy. Sam, welcome to the pod. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, we're really glad to have you. Well, we wanted to check in because you recently had the honor of reading Ron DeSantis's Not a Campaign book, The Courage to be Free. And as someone who is not going to subject myself to that, I would love to learn more about how DeSantis portrays himself in this book and how he differentiates himself from Trump. Mm, Yes, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, the second part of that is the kind of funniest part to me because he can't straightforwardly criticize Trump, but he does have to implicitly distinguish himself from him all the time. I mean, it's a really like pathetic dance that he's engaged in with basically every day. But I'll say to begin with, the way he portrays himself is the text is extremely bitter, whiny and self-aggrandizing. It's got all this kind of he can't ever really be charming or self-effacing. Like he's one of these people who like He's presented with a story that might possibly be sort of charming or sympathetic in another writer's hands. But instead, the moral of every story has to be, and I was the greatest. And so the book, I mean, I don't read a lot of campaign books, but it's really extraordinarily unappealing (laughs) on the page. I mean, he's a narcissist like Trump, but he has none of Trump's charm or humor about himself. And his like basic fixation seems to be that he's exceptional and he's wise and he has the right perspective on all things. And he's deeply rageful, I would say, just extremely annoyed by anyone who stands in his way or who suggests that he's not as exceptional as he considers himself. I mean, it's a really kind of petulant book and a small man. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) screams from its pages if the book was called a small man yeah i mean i don't know man i mean it's if you just pick it up read the pdf and read a few pages of it you'll get it. it comes through so strongly just this really unappealing petulant whiny person and so when i was reading it i was looking for the sort of sly or implicit moments where he distinguishes himself from trump and I would say that the main way he does that is one, by sort of presenting himself as super competent and in control and that like everything that happens in his governorship is something that he has a handle on, that people, that he's, the buck stops with him. He doesn't have this sort of coterie of crazy advisors with their own agenda like Trump did and sort of presents himself as the like, the er-competent executive, which I think implicitly is a criticism of Trump for being so erratic. 
And then there's a couple of funny moments where he is describing Trump's ascent, where he puts criticisms of Trump in the mouths of sort of other people said about Trump. And those are sort of revealing. And the main thing he talks about is how people, when Trump was running, thought that he was too liberal on certain issues. So basically, these people, not me, are saying that Trump is a former Democrat. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It says that in so many words. What are some of the strangest anecdotes in the book? I mean, you mentioned he has kind of these stories where he then emerges as like, and I was in the riot and I'm great. Well, we did talk about this on our podcast when we talked about the book, but it is one of the most revealing ones. It's the story where he meets his wife, Casey, who it should be said is his closest advisor. She had the office when he became governor. She took the office that's usually the chief of staff's office. She is his number one person that he trusts. And sort of all the reporting suggests that she has kind of all the charm and finesse that he lacks. And he's like notoriously sort of antisocial or asocial, and she has all that in spades. And so he really relies on her. But anyway, in the book, when they meet, they meet at like a driving range. And it's supposed to be the charming, meet cute story. And he sees this beautiful woman doing a great job hitting golf balls. And he says something like, most men probably wouldn't have the courage to just walk up to a beautiful woman and ask her out on a date. But I've always thought you don't get anything if you don't try. I'm the kind of man who does that. He's got Riz. That's great. (laughs) I mean, it's like, I feel like in most books like this, the one moment where you could have a little humor about yourself and sort of say, I was this bumbling former athlete and she was this beautiful local television anchor. But the moral of the story has to be that I had the balls to go walk up to her. And he did. (laughs) (laughs) It was beautiful about it is that he did. (laughs) There's something like, I think he is very Trumpian in this respect because there's something that Trump does, which absolutely just grates at me, which is like describing his really normal heterosexuality is like something unique and interesting to him. And even just on the Access Hollywood tape, right? Before he's talking about sexual assault, he's like, I'm just automatically attracted to women. It's like, yeah, it's called being a straight man. Like, you think people don't approach women on a golf course? Anyway, I just, I think that's such a funny takeaway from this book. Trump often seems to be like playing a straight man in drag. Like he has to overperform, <laughs> like what straightness is. He's like, yeah, of course, I was very attracted to the beautiful woman I saw. That's 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 the way I am. So DeSantis, he's trying to position himself as the more competent policy wonk version of Trump. All the rage and bitterness and none of the erratic unpredictability. And to that end, he has drawn some, I would say, conservative intellectuals around him. One figure is Nate Kochman. He's sort of a character from the new right scene that you've done a lot of profiling on. Can you refresh us on who he is and what his role with the DeSantis world is now? Sure. Nate Hockman is somebody who I profiled in a TNR piece on the rise of sort of young, new right conservative intellectuals. He's been on our podcast and he was hired as a speechwriter for DeSantis a few weeks ago, maybe months now. And Nate's somebody who kind of has very quickly made his way to the higher echelons of the conservative intellectual elite. He's only like 24, 25 years old. We could check. When I first met him, he was working for The Dispatch, which is Jonah Goldberg's sort of never Trump conservative outlet. That was right after Nate got out of college. Then from there, he went to National Review. He did one of these fellowships at the Claremont Institute. And then he was hired away from National Review by the DeSantis campaign. So that's a sort of 
a rightward and upward trajectory for Nate through conservative intellectual venues. And I think there's one sort of easy thing to say about the career trajectory of somebody like Nate Hockman, which is that conservative institutions are desperate for sort of young, relatively smart talent. And they have all of these sort of institutions on campuses, in the media and around who are just looking for somebody who can at least put some sentences together and likes to read. And if you are relatively intelligent, as Nate is, you can really move quickly to the higher echelons of sort of the inner sanctum of conservatism really quickly, as Nate has. Yeah. And so that sounds like really appealing to the DeSantis camp, right? I mean, we know there's been a lot of infighting between Sansa's world and more Trump stalwarts. I mean, is someone like Nate Hockman's uh, participation in the DeSantis campaign, is that or campaign, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> presumes campaign? He's not a candidate, as we saw yesterday. No, he's clearly not, adamantly <laughs> not. I mean, does that draw any kind of like tension in the new right about who they're supporting? Yeah, I think this is sort of one of the keys that I tried to make sense of when I was writing about Trump and DeSantis, which is that so far, DeSantis really is attracting this kind of more elite, wealthier, higher educated part of the Republican primary electorate. And that is also reflected in the sorts of operatives that are being attracted to his campaign. So Nate really is the kind of er conservative intellectual type. Obviously, now he's an operative, but he to lay our cards on the table. He's a big fan of my podcast because it's a podcast about conservative intellectual history and he likes it even though he disagrees with all of our conclusions. And there's a kind of divide that's sort of showing up in both in the polling for in terms of the base and in the sort of people who are attracted to each campaign where DeSantis, he kind of is attracting this kind of like high-minded, we're going to reshape American politics according to our moral orthodoxy kind of bookish, conservative, elite types, whereas Trump is holding on to, first of all, the crazy operatives, the real nutty ones, and the grifters. And then in terms of the electorate, he's really holding on to the lower educated, the lower income, the kind of core sort of er Trump voter who the media has been obsessed with for so long. And I think this divide is like sort of symptomatic of the divisions within the conservative movement. It can be expressed in this idea of DeSantis as Trump with a brain or like a competent version of Trump. And my conjecture is that that's not necessarily what the base that was attracted to Trump and continues to be more attracted to Trump than to DeSantis in terms of polling. That's not really what they want. And that's not really what they liked about Trump. And in my kind of perverse conclusion is that in a way, Trump's incompetence was attractive because it was a sort of an insult to precisely the kind of meritocratic, highly educated elites who overvalue maybe things like intellectual pedigree and going to the right schools and being able to speak in a certain way and having all these qualities that DeSantis has in spades, which Trump seems to lack. How do you think if DeSantis goes ahead and runs, I mean, how do you think that's all going to play out in the primary? I mean, on your podcast, you talk so much about the history of conservatism and this clash between these different factions and ideologies. What are you anticipating or what are you looking for in the primary? Yeah, well, you've already pointed to the fact that my podcast, we always try to go back to history because we're bad pundits. I'm a bad, <laughs> I'm bad at this part of it. So I don't know. I mean, what it's looking like so far is that the Republican 
base, the sort of primary electorate, really has shed a lot of suburban and wealthier and more highly educated voters who are precisely the people who are rallying to DeSantis over Trump, even if they had voted for Trump in the past. And so DeSantis may not have a lane in the primary if Trump is going to hold on to all of the lower educated, more rural voters who are his base. I'm not sure that there's just the numbers might not work in DeSantis's favor. The irony that I'm sure is not lost on the DeSantis campaign is that his coalition might be a better bet in the general, because, of course, the Democrats now, as a consequence of that socioeconomic and demographic shift between their sorting between the parties, the Democrats rely on every single one of those suburban, highly educated voters. And so if DeSantis could peel off enough of those in a general election, he might be more likely to beat Joe Biden or whoever else it is. But in the primary, I think the way it's shaking out is not looking good for Ivy League Ron. So you point out that Ron is kind of he is an elite figure, right? He went to Yale. He went to Harvard. He's a lawyer. But in his book and in a lot of his speeches, certainly he rails against this idea of the elite. So, I mean, I'm interested in what or who he means when he talks about elite. Yeah, it's become a very familiar kind of two step that Republicans in the sort of who who conceive of themselves in the populist lane or the Trumpist lane of their party will do, which is sort of rail against the elites and then define out of the elite anybody who would likely vote for them. So like people who own oil companies or family owned multi-million dollar car dealerships or whatever are, are not elites. Elites are people who have a certain academic pedigree, who are bureaucrats in the government and especially people in academia. Of course, the conservative notion of, of the elite that they've been developing over the past eight, nine years is one which has nothing to do with wealth or even income. It has very little to do with sort of like one's relationship to production in the Marxist categories of ruling class and worker It's very much just elites are people who vote for Democrats and share a set of perceived moral values and sort of forms of moral etiquette, which they find irksome. So like elites are people who are woke and woke people are people who are elite. And it's a useful kind of bait and switch for them because there is a legitimate crisis of elite legitimacy or sort of there's a crisis of confidence in elites in this country, which has kind of real and understandable predicates in terms of how the economy has been run and the wars that we've gotten into and and so on and so on. But what they do is write out of the elite anybody who they want to be on their side or they want to continue to donate to their campaigns and so on. Now, much has been written and discussed about Ron DeSantis being weird. Let's take it back to that. I mean, but, you know, weirdness is not always a disqualifier in politics or certainly in conservative politics. I mean, does DeSantis remind you of anyone as a student of the conservative movement and the history there? I mean, does DeSantis remind you of anyone in the past? Um, and, and how did it work out for them? Yeah. Well, I'll give you two examples or two comparisons, one which will be less controversial and one which will be more so. The first one, I would say, is that he definitely has a sort of Paul Ryan vibe in the sense that Paul Ryan was this kind of young, fresh-faced, very invested in his youth and health. I don't know if you guys remember, like, those photos of him like weightlifting that were in, the, in a oh, major yeah. magazine. How could I forget? Yeah. And then at the same time that he's invested in him being as like the new face of conservatism, he's a true libertarian ideologue and very well read and preoccupied with those ideas as sort of forming the basis for his politics. And I think 
while DeSantis has sort of flirted with populism on a sort of culture war level, his economic instincts are still fairly Ryanite, but just also sort of just vibes, as we are allowed to talk about now in political reporting. Their vibes are similar. They kind of want to seem cool and young, but they're not cool. And they are kind of weird and off-putting. And they're attracting a lot of support from sort of the older conservative intellectual elite who want to feel like they're part of the new thing in town while basically recycling the same old economic ideas. So I see that. In terms of their personalities and their maybe like psychological inner life to the extent that I'm allowed to plumb those depths just by reading his books and thinking about him and psychoanalyzing him, he does remind me a bit of Richard Nixon in the sense that Nixon had such a chip on his shoulder about like working harder than everybody else and growing up not in the elite and then breaking his way into, but always mistrusting those elites because he thought that they weren't reliable, that they were going to kick him out. Or I see in him this kind of, also Nixon was socially incapable, off-putting to people, including off-putting because of that sort of obsessive striving mentality that just always seems like Nixon was working really hard. He like the joke about Nixon was that he made politics look hard, whereas somebody like Eisenhower made politics look easy. And in fact, a lot of people like it when you seems like politics is easy for you, like Bill Clinton. He made politics look easy and that was attractive. I think DeSantis, like Nixon, makes doing politics look hard because he needs to prove that he's the hardest working all the time. So I see similar hang ups and sort of self-expression in the two of them. That's a little foreboding, you know. Uh, this Nixon arguably, you know, did Watergate because he couldn't let well enough alone. He was going to win that election. Well, I mean, you can always hope for a repeat. Sam, one thing that's really interesting to me is this growing narrative on the right that not only is DeSantis kind of weird, that he's weak. I mean, there was a Chris Christie interview maybe a week and a half ago saying something to the effect of like, if DeSantis can't even win a fight with Disney, which he's feuding with, then how can he win a fight with China? And I'm just wondering, I don't know, even at a psychological level, how much of a campaign killer is an allegation of weakness? Oh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, in the Trumpified conservative media environment and the Trumpified party, this sort of where like male virility and strength and domination is basically like the coin of the realm. Perhaps it is a very effective attack. And I think it's, the sort of thing is likely to get under his skin because I think he's a former college athlete. He's definitely preoccupied with his own strength and masculinity. And maybe it's effective as a taunt as much as it is as a kind of political winner for the electorate. But I really don't know beyond that. So we've been joined here by Sam, who co-hosts the excellent Know Your Enemy podcast. I just wanted to give a plug for their Whitaker Chambers series or episode, which I think runs like three hours long about this this sort of not former, quite, not quite. former communist spy turned conservative intellectual that I found. I was kind of dipping in and out of, but it was just very relaxing just hearing the guys. I mean, the genius of the podcast is that both Sam and his co-host are so conversant in the conservative movement history going back decades and decades. Sam, quick question what if people were looking for an intro podcast just one episode of know your enemy to check out and kind of get the lay of the land what would you recommend oh man i should obviously have a good answer to this i think it's our, maybe our second or third episode which means that the sort of quality of the editing will be worse but not necessarily the quality of the conversation but what we did on a book called how conservatives argue which is uh albert hirschman book 
which people tend to really like. And that could be a good intro into the podcast. We also did sometime later a podcast called The Rise of the Illiberal Right, which is perhaps more kosher to the sort of themes of this podcast describing what the kind of Trumpian intellectual scene that arose um, during his presidency and how it distinguished itself from the conservatism that came before it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Extremely unsettling, but always enlightening. Good. Thank you. I'm so happy to hear that. This was really fun for me. <laughs> and thank you for really committing to the bit and actually reading DeSantis's book, because it sounds like you got some good tips on pickup artistry, all that yeah, good stuff. Yeah, yeah. You have to pick up a bucket of golf balls and say, would you like to use some of my golf ball? <laughs> And women <laughs> melt if you do that. Never fails. <laughs> All right. It is time for Fresh Hell. Will, what is the worst this week? So the worst this week is the use of AI-generated images in political ads. So Biden, as we record this on Tuesday, Biden has just announced his re-election bid, to which I say whatever, although I do like that he's selling a dark-branded T-shirt. But the RNC came out with a response. So this is the Republican response to Biden. And what's interesting is that all of the images in it are AI generated. A lot of them, I feel like you could have just taken from news clips. I mean, it's like immigrants at the border, unrest, all this stuff. But I guess they got in on it and they got mid journey or some other AI thing to generate the images. And so I thought that it's a little funny that they, I mean, look, there's enough things to complain about with Brandon, but instead they decided to say, what if, I mean, the ad is saying, what if, China invades Taiwan and then they just show Biden like looking sad at his desk. What if the banks close? And then the one where they really get nice, I felt sort of fulfilled the brief to get really dystopian with it was they said, what if San Francisco as a city is condemned and everyone is forced out of San Francisco? So this weird, weird vibe with the AI. I mean, these AI images already look so uncanny that I think they're weirdly effective in political ads because they give you this really alienated feeling. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, so much for making jobs, GOP, like you're putting these poor illustrators out of work. But no, I think that's exactly right. There's something like just slightly off, like it'll be a picture of a crowd and you say, well, OK, there's plenty of stock images of crowds that you can just pull. But like everyone's facial dimensions are just like a tiny, tiny, tiny bit off. And I do think that does play into an uncanniness. Yeah. Are you looking here at the picture of old people lining up at a foreclosed sure bank? Am. <laughs> yeah. So this is, I mean, it does like you feel like you're in like a dream sequence from a movie or something where it's like everyone looks a little weird. Everyone looks kind of the same. In this case, I think it's interesting that they seem to have chosen an image where it's all senior citizens lined up to get, I guess, their savings from a closed bank. And a weird amount of them are wearing sunglasses. They're all wearing kind of the same overcoat. Like one guy kind of looks like Professor Plum. Like it's just a very weird feeling. Yeah, absolutely. This is the dystopian Biden future where everyone has to wear the same green overcoat. I think that's really something that we should be worried about. I will give them credit for one thing that they did. And if this is indeed AI, they managed to have a picture of a Latino guy smoking with an MS-13 tattoo on his forehead. Yes. And it's very hard to make AI generate pictures of text, let alone a realistic looking kind of one on a racial scaremongering ad. So I do give them credit for that. 
Yeah, so I wanted to highlight this one. I mean, this guy has like insane trapezoids as well. Yeah, so this is the real highlight of the ad. So the three dystopian things are China invades Taiwan, banks close, which neither of those things is totally out of the realm of possibility. But then the final one, officials closed the city of San Francisco this morning, citing the escalating crime and fentanyl crisis. Closed San Francisco. No more San Francisco. If folks have read any Batman comics, there's one in which Gotham City is declared to be a no man's land, and then people like the Penguin and Mr. Freeze take over. And so they sort of seem to have taken a cue from this. And so they have pictures of like just everyone being herded out by the Golden Gate Bridge. And then there's just a shot of this guy, who by the way, extremely handsome guy. This is, if folks remember, the hot criminal from long ago, the viral mugshot. Yes, I'm getting very cyberpunk video game. Yeah, it does look like cyberpunk 2077. Yeah, he's smoking. He's got a cigarette kind of nonchalantly in his mouth. He's got MS-13 over his forehead. He's got a great, great chin. He's got kind of like a little goatee. And then it says, what if crime worsens? I mean, they really went off with this AI. I love it. I think most Republicans will at least tell you that there are problems that need to be addressed. But to your point, I love that they didn't actually get into that. They just went straight into the realm of fan fiction. Oh, no. What if there was a hot criminal? (laughs) (laughs) And he took over San Francisco. This was such a weird move. I mean, look, they got us talking about it. I was going to say, I guess you really could have just take, can't you just take a picture of a regular real criminal? But no, it it had to be the RNC was like, make him hotter, more muscular. Okay, thanks, Mid Journey. But he's not, he doesn't have that snatched look. Well, yeah, I mean, unless you're using a professional account, which maybe they are, all of mid-journey prompts are searchable. So I think after we hang up here, I'm going to go in and see if anyone was just adding that into the prompts, you know, more angular. MS-13, criminal, smoking, cigarette, but after buccal fat removal. On that note, Let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer, and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.